Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for all those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Julia Ahrens. Policy Forum Pod is hosted at Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. If you want to become a leader in the field of public policy, you should really check out our wide range of short courses and degrees. We're not only home to some of the leading academics in their fields, but also hands down have the most beautiful and leafy surrounds for you to study in. You can find all the information you need at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, before we get started with this week's pod, I'd also like to extend a warm invite to you to join us at the Great Green Debate, which is taking place at the ANU on Thursday, 17 October. Our pod presenters, Sharon Bessel and Martin Pierce, you have heard them many times, will be hosting a discussion with John Hewson, Imran Ahmad and Shane Rattenbury on whether Australia should declare a climate emergency. It's a very hot topic at the moment, especially in light of the recent climate strike protests. So I'm looking forward to hearing all the arguments for and against. But even more than that, this will be basically our very first live pod and we would love to see you there. So if you want to join, please don't forget to register. You can get more information and you can put your name down at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash news events. Coming up later on the pod, we are going to take a look at the strategies that women employ to keep themselves safe from domestic violence and what policymakers can do to help them. First, though, we want to turn our attention to look at our rapidly growing cities. Everywhere in the world, more and more people are moving to cities. The United Nations estimates that by 2050, 68% of the world's population will live in urban areas. And whilst millions of people have moved from rural areas to cities, urban centers at the same time are facing a great influx of international migrants. It really doesn't take an expert to see the huge challenges that this development poses both to policymakers and urban planners. From inequality and threats to people's health to accommodating new ways of work within cities, whilst at the same time maintaining prospects for rural areas, they have an absolute myriad of difficult tasks to deal with. So today we want to ask, how can policymakers tackle the challenges that population growth poses to cities in a sustainable way? Tackling this important issue are three absolutely terrific experts. 
We've got here Dr. Jasmine Ha, who is a research fellow at the ANU School of Demography. She works on the ARC Discovery Project entitled Overcoming the Problems on Inconsistent Migration Data. Our second panelist is Professor Glenn Withers, who is a professor of economics at the ANU Research School of Economics and also the founding CEO of Universities Australia, a fantastic person to have on the panel. And last but not least, we have Professor Sharon Frill, who is director of the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance and also a professor of health equity there. Leading the discussion is Paul Vivo. Paul is a postdoc here at Crawford School of Public Policy, and he is also a member of the Food, Energy, Environment and Water Network. And I'll be back after the discussion, but for now, let's hand over to our panel. Hello, Sharon. Hello, Jasmine. Hello, Glenn. Thank you very much for joining us. Our cities are growing at a rapid rate. It's predicted by the UN that by 2050, an additional 2.5 billion people will be living in urban areas around the world. Sharon Friel, what do you think is a, a key challenge associated with this development? So I think the the processes of urbanisation that you've described bring real opportunities as well as challenges. One of the, the big challenges is if that urban development is done in such a way that doesn't pay attention to who wins, who loses uh, out of the development, that doesn't think about the nature of housing, the employment opportunities, uh, the quality of the urban transport uh, systems, all of that has actually got significant implications for human health. Uh, because, so if if you don't have access to good quality employment, so cities are the you know the real engine of uh, economic development. So of course, a lot of employment opportunities are located within cities. But if those employment opportunities aren't good quality, that's actually really bad for your mental health. Also, if uh, transport systems are set up in a way that don't encourage us to be active, so public transport is a great thing for us to be uh, not just good for the environment, but it gets us to be physically active, and that's really good for uh, you know reducing risks of cardiovascular disease, of obesity, of diabetes. Also, um, the design of cities can be done in such a way that uh, the access to quality food for example, uh, can make sure that we've got a nutritious food supply, an affordable food supply, uh, a really highly desirable food supply or not. And what we have seen globally is in cities that have been developed in ways that don't pay any attention to these questions of the nature of the food supply, uh, that what we end up with is a proliferation of foods that are not very healthy at all. So you've got the physical activity aspect of the urban design as well as the, the foods that are available, as well as the mental health risks potentially. And then, of course, you've got air pollution that arises from both the industries that are in the cities and the, the transport systems as well. Thank you, Sharon. And Jasmine Hart, do you have anything to follow up on that and some of the challenges around urban population growth? 
Um, definitely, I agree with what uh, Sharon has outlined. And uh, just to add a little bit of our my perspective as a demographer. So when we think about 2.4 billion people, we think about um, the kind of places that are connected, right? Where do people come from and where do they go to? And so with the concentration of people in cities, you can think that the flow of people across space has become much more condensed in a number of places. And maybe there's not enough of counter flow of people moving out the cities. And so when you think about this movement that contain people, then all this problem can arise because people bring it with them, not just themselves or the labor power, but also uh, family relationship, social needs, their family, their children. And so all of that fit in into a complex conversation about needs and infrastructure. And also, uh, uh, we're ta- if we're talking about internal migration, it's going to be a little bit less complicated. But if we talk about international migration, when you bring in people who have different sort of cultural background or different expectation and lifestyle, there can be sentiments um, that are not so um, friendly. Uh, and that is something that uh, when we have a complex and diverse places, then we also have to think about how do we want to um, incorporate this diversity or how how does that diversity benefit um, the people who are there as well as the people who are coming in. That's great. Thank you, Jasmine. And Glenn, do you have anything that you'd like to follow up on? Sure. Um, thinking of the grand scheme of things, uh, humankind has, has shown a, a distinct predilection for many of us to live in cities. Um, what's happened is internal population movements and global population movements have tended to favour urbanisation. And that's been possible because we've moved uh, from agriculture as our, our dominant preoccupation into manufacturing and into services and these days post-service worlds. Uh, and by and large, that's meant our capacity to live well has increased as a reflection of that. But along the way, there's a whole lot of problems. Uh, the, the new locations in urban areas carry their own issues for the nature of life, the nature of families, the, the nature of aging processes and so on that we have to be careful, of course, to, to still look after people there. And also there's a few people uh, in important uh, locations left behind. That is, there's agricultural populations that still don't live well, uh, even though most do in the cities and so on. So that the, the whole process of uh, urbanisation that is equitable and still has, uh, as it were, adequate choices of location because in the post-service world, it may be with uh, digitalisation being what it is, many of us might be seeking new locations outside urban areas because you can communicate uh, as readily now, which you couldn't do before, uh, and uh, access so much knowledge and information and uh, and social participation in ways that uh, could allow for differences. So here we are, we've uh, moved to urbanisation as the dominant mode of living and we may well move beyond it. So uh, to take a big perspective is is helpful and along the way to uh, make sure we're caring for those who've suffered uh, mm. or been disadvantaged in the process or haven't been able to participate in the process. Can I just pick up on one thing there? You, you mentioned a post-service world. I'm not familiar with that expression. Could you explain that? Economists often use primary industry, second industry, and tertiary industry as the three characterizations of, in a sense, the the period before, during, and after the Industrial Revolution. But with digitalization, they often had quaternary, meaning uh, IT-enabled, digitalized uh, industries and uh, activities. 
Uh, now, whether it, it, it's in turn, of course, dependent upon good manufacturing of the appropriate digital products and good services for the way they uh, operate and deliver. But their interconnectedness and the, and the way they uh, alter our lifestyles is often classified now as a quaternary uh, set of activities in our in our lives. Uh, there's you know phrases like industry you know 4.0 and so on that start to come in here and uh, go well beyond the old sort of notions of you know 19th century manufacturing and 20th century uh, broadcasting and media services this is seen as a, a new era now some of that's hype uh, but it is a helpful recognition of that new interdependence that comes with a digitalized era and it does allow a, a different sort of settlement if, if we so choose into the future. That the, the old argument was, for instance, that it would enable so much more work from home compared to going to workplaces of the conventional kind. Now, that hasn't really happened as much as many predicted, but maybe it's early days. So I was putting it in there as a, a marker for the future. Oh, fantastic. That's very helpful. Sharon, did you have something you want to follow up on? Well, yeah. I mean, it, just picking – I think that's a really important point with – if we think – as well uh, with the sort of the added pressures of climate change coming, because we know cities, you know, the urban heat, heat island effect, uh, and so cities getting to unbearable temperatures now all around the world, in many places around the world, and so if there is you know, that thought and, and and really some of those developments of moving out into other areas. Uh, then that begs the question of making sure that we've got the uh, the digital infrastructure uh, to support that sort of uh, of being and that sort of employment for people in these uh, new locations. Some analysis that we did uh, here within Australia, looking at the uh, the telecom infrastructure, shows an incredible inequity uh, in terms of being able to. Uh, do those new forms of living and being uh, that that Glenn's speaking about? It you really just sort of begs that question for you know certainly from a policy coherence uh, perspective of if we're thinking about the future and the future developments for human settlements, responding to some of these environmental signals, uh, then making sure that we've got infrastructure labour policy that uh, has caught up with what will be required. Otherwise, we're going to have, I, I think we will see increasing uh, social inequities uh, within Australia and globally, absolutely globally. And then for my health, you know, I'm concerned about what does that mean then ultimately for people's health. Uh, and we know that that tracks into a, a widening of health inequities. Within cities as well, if, if, if I may just sort of pick up on, so there are urban divides, quite significant uh, urban divides, and it comes back to how those cities have been developed, have been planned, and for what purpose. So the, I mean, if you think of, of Melbourne, uh, of Sydney, uh, of cities all over the Asia-Pacific region, in those urban fringes is where uh, housing becomes more affordable. It's where uh, lower socioeconomic groups uh, gravitate towards because it is more affordable. But it's also areas where there are fewer services, there is less public transport, uh, the sorts of issues that I was speaking about in terms of access to sort of food and physical activity. 
So again, creating uh, quite significant divides uh, within our cities uh, is, that's not a new thing. But if you think of the new forms of development that are taking place and that are going to take place, we could pay attention to that. You know, that's a, a policy choice that we've got. Could we go just beyond Australia for that too? I think what Sharon said is particularly pertinent to Australia and the, the, the reverse side of that's the digital divide for, for age versus young. But a yeah, dimension yeah. of that on the global scale, and if you want to look for some sources of optimism and think like a Stephen Bradbury about these things where you come up from behind and zoom past all the others uh, at the crucial point, uh, the, the, the take-up of, of digital media is absolutely fantastic in places like Africa and South Asia, which in terms of the standards of living and so on have been lagging uh, in many cases. Yet the youth there have just jumped beyond mm. conventional sort of uh, approaches to work and life and have taken up digital with an incredible gusto. So there is possibly, yeah. with many other conditions having to be met, uh, the chance of of them seizing the day and going beyond in, in, in some ways uh, much more senescent developed societies that have lost a bit of their their zest and, and verve so that one might look to an optimistic future. But the conditionalities on that are still pretty important. Uh, but there is one other thing that goes with it, which is I, I, I like the idea of having been told by some colleagues of, of, of mine, uh, uh, Lee and Barrow, that um, – Globally, we'll probably have just about universal participation in primary and secondary education by about 2040. Uh, the quality of that education is another thing entirely. But compared to you know 20 years ago, looking 20 years ahead, the capacity of the globe to at least put young people uh, through schooling is another dramatic improvement. And in these days when so many things are annoying and awful, it's nice to think of things like that digital take-up, that, that growth of education participation. So the possibility is there of using that well into, into the future, including this quaternary uh, era. So I do like to occasionally emphasize some positive prospects ahead of us if we manage to manage our affairs reasonably competently. Well, uh, of course, you know, Naturally, I have to bring things back to a less positive, uh, <laughs> less positive context sometimes. And um, I want to pick up on a point that, that Sharon made earlier, and, and that was with regards to climate change. Now, one of the things when we project forward into the future with regards to climate change is that there could be uh, a lot of international migration flows associated with that as people are moving out of countries um, where the social economic systems aren't really able to cope. Jasmine, why is it that international migra migrants choose to move to cities instead of less populated areas? Um, I think that it um, goes back to, you know, classical theories of migration, like basically the reasons that m migrants move is opportunity, broadly defined. So most people move to get jobs. Most people move uh, if they have a family, um, especially in the context of climate migration. Um, uh, many studies have pointed out that a family can send a migrant out to work as an insurance policy for their household, right? So in case the climate becomes so unbearable and their crop doesn't produce as much as expected, then they have that remittance income to help them through the year. So uh, I, I would think in general that migrants would gravitate towards places where there are opportunity. And thinking about the drive, like where do these migrants come from? If you think that they're living areas that are mostly in agriculture, so then the opportunity that they're looking for is likely more economics. 
So, so it's, it's uh, very much determined by a opportunity and then uh, uh, divided by where they're coming from and what they're looking for in this context. Glenn, beyond climate change more broadly, I, I think the key point, one of the key points that Jasmine made there was this notion of economic opportunity. And this is something that drives people to move to another country and, and potentially be able to send remittances back to their families at home. Would you say that there are similar drivers there for rural to urban migration as well, or are there some differences? Usually, um, because of the agricultural revolution, everything that's followed since then, we can continue to feed our populations with our existing technology that we now have, up to even you know nine billion people on this planet. The, 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 the problem facing us is the proper distribution of that to the to get it to the people who need it. We have the capacity to produce it. That means we don't need large numbers of people literally on the land uh, with very low productive uh, traditional agriculture, modern, mechanised, uh, large-scale uh, agriculture, scientific agriculture can actually cater for our food needs in principle. The distribution issue is a very different one and, and issues like starvation and famine and so on are functions of human arrangements that, uh, that, dis, that are dysfunctional rather than the capacity we have to produce. So that, what that means is that people can go and find activities elsewhere where they can, their productivity is higher, where people are willing to pay more for what they want to produce by way of services to others or working in production of products for others. So globally, that means matching up where those uh, demands are for the labour of those those folk uh, and where those people would like to settle and, and, and grow and, and develop their lives. But it's equally internal. If you think of the greatest revolution in uh, human welfare that's taken place uh, in the last 70 years, uh, let's use that as uh, appropriate at the moment, it's China. And uh, what's happened there is uh, huge, you know, half the population has moved off the land into the cities. And their standard of living has, uh, you know, doubled, tripled, quadrupled and so on, is growing at 6 8% a year. Uh, that's a, you know, a massive transformation of humankind's material prospects out of poverty into reasonable levels of living. And it's all been done when people have moved from the rural areas into the cities and found new activities that uh, that we as humans want from each other in, in how we interact with each other. Uh, China's done it especially through manufacturing, but it's transitioning strongly into services and quaternary now too. Uh, and it, it's now demanding, you know, childcare and education services at the highest university levels of the world, uh, not just uh, cheap manufacturing and, and rice growing. So what you've had is that transformation of, of humankind through internal mo migration as much, uh, as alongside um, international migration, indeed more with internal if you count the Chinese uh, movement. Uh, the, the global scale movements are not on that same scale as the internal movements in places like China and India. Thanks, Glenn. I think you've, you've painted a great picture there of, I guess, some of the drivers for rural urban migration and also some of the opportunities and, and broader benefits at the social or, or economic level. But I guess not everybody can be a winner. And if I could pick up, Sharon, on, on something that you mentioned before, that there are some challenges in terms of equality or, or equity uh, of outcomes with regards to health, food security, and a whole range of other factors. Would you, would you like to comment on that? 
Yeah. So if if you think of the the, the points that uh, Glenn has has just made, the so I think it's important to bear in mind that there are other transitions that have been taking place concurrently and and partly driven by these processes of urbanisation and uh, the move to these of the economic engines that are the the cities. So the the health transition is one thing. So whilst it's absolutely true that the levels of hunger and famine have dropped uh, significantly globally. Uh, it is still very unequally uh, distributed. And the, the point that Glenn was making of that distribution of food uh, is one of the big, big challenges of our time. But also with with the levels of urbanisation, with the growing middle class and sort of growing incomes within these cities in uh, countries all over the world and particularly in low and middle income countries, has come uh, a transition to non-communicable diseases. So whereas before people were dying from they didn't have enough food or the, the conditions of work uh, on the land were so dangerous uh, or just so so hard on them you know they were dying from those sorts of things you know life expectancy was incredibly low life expectancy has increased globally phenomenally uh, although we still have countries where life expectancy might be 60 in Australia you know it's of 80 85 more so you've had a transition towards these non-communicable diseases, diabetes, heart disease, different types of cancers, levels of uh, obesity that are really uh, detrimental to health, levels of mental ill health that we've never seen before. And so it comes to that question of with those um, internal and external um, migration patterns and the the ways of thinking about the development of cities and the opportunities within those cities, it has meant that some people have benefited incredibly from that and they've had the ability to ensure that sort of quality of education or they've got the quality of housing, they've got the quality uh, of employment, they've, got, they've been able to live in neighbourhoods where they've got access to healthy foods. For those people, that's fantastic. For others, and I'll, come, I'll go back to the urban fringe, but it's not just the urban fringes, uh, but for people who are still living in poverty, where poverty has been exacerbated uh, in those conditions in the cities, then those communities are now exposed to everyday living conditions that are contributing to these sorts of health outcomes that I'm speaking about. And so that's where we see incredible improvements in some indicators and a widening in the inequality in some other indicators. And it doesn't have to actually be like that. So there's some gorgeous examples for, from within China and from within actually a number of countries in our region where actually just thinking about the nature of urban development makes sure that not only are you achieving those economic growth markers, but you're also thinking about People call it well-being markers. You don't have to talk about health. You just talk, you know, talk about well-being and sustainability. So there's cities that are being developed in in China that 
are phenomenal in terms of all of these issues that we're, we're speaking about and that are also going to be so environmentally sustainable um, and they're, you know, they're at such scale. Um, so I, that's my little bit of hope in a, an environment where I look at urban and urban health inequities around the world and especially given that so much of the urban growth has still to happen in low and middle income countries. Let's learn from the mistakes of, and actually in high income countries, you know, we've developed cities really badly. Uh, and that's why, you know, partly why we see the levels of poor health and inequalities that we've got. So there's real opportunity, I think, in, in low and middle income countries to, to, to do this well. But Potentially not repeat some of the mistakes of the exactly, past and learn. Exactly. I guess elite, that notion of notion of leap, leapfrogging, I think, yeah. which Glenn introduced earlier yeah. on. Yeah. Oh, you uh, just to to touch on what what you just said there, uh, Sharon. You mentioned the idea of a sustainable city and 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 sustainability. Uh, ask the the whole panel, maybe starting with you, Glenn. What does a sustainable city look like? Uh, what 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 can we imagine that to be? What are some of the key features? Well, we, we have some examples, but the mm. point of even pointing to examples is how rare they are. That is, uh, our, our human ingenuity for planning ahead of our needs as humans is, is uh, very limited. So that cities grow like topsy in the, in the sense of uh, often uncontrolled, often undisciplined, ill-regulated and so on, uh, so that they do not grow as well as, as we could devise if, if we were, you know, sitting as, as uh, omniscient figures planning a city like Canberra. Uh, the capacity of a Canberra to accommodate a reasonable way of life because it was planned ahead of occupancy. Uh, to those of us who live in Canberra, find that um, uh, delightful uh, compared to, to cities that, that grew without the same discipline. So uh, urban planning, we've got to learn to do better. And given this urbanisation phenomenon, you know, how can we not try and get on top of that more than we have, with large parts of the world still to urbanise uh, uh, thoroughly too, especially in, in Africa, significant parts of South America and, and South Asia and Central Asia and so on. There's still the opportunity there and even in places like you know Indonesia with the shift in the capital from Jakarta to Sulawesi for uh, a chance to build new cities that show us how to do these these things well. So, uh, you know, human ingenuity uh, is is there, our knowledge is there, but our ability to implement it through our politics and organisation of our societies is still uh, falling behind. So, uh, we, we have the problem, as Sharon said, of of some, you know, parts of cities being, you know, wonderful places to live compared to where it would have been 100 and 200 years ago, but other parts of those same cities being dismal and awful, uh, that we haven't cracked the code for managing our affairs totally. And that comes back to things like inequality of power, uh, inequality of uh, income and wealth, uh, and, and lack of concern for things like uh, sustainability, uh, and, and the difficulties of even taking account of things that are public goods like public health, yeah. that, that we, the rich of us, can look after ourselves in a modern age with, with healthcare. But uh, a lot of the things that affect all of us 
even the rich can't look after well. There's a lot of fat rich people uh, around who are getting obese and getting diabetes. And uh, so to pull all these things together as humans is the challenge of our policies as humans. And it's what, dare I say, coming from the Crawford School, uh, as we are, uh, that uh, we, we are trying to make, of course, those policy settings uh, as good as we can make with the knowledge we have as human beings. And that includes the urban settings and, and those that feed into that and make urban life the way it is. Thanks, Glenn. And, and I think one of your points that you made there, Canberra as a model for urban planning and a model for the world, I'll be sure to tell that to people <laughs> next time they tell me that where I live is boring. Yes, now, so, so the Melbourne people for a start might have different yeah, views, sure. but, but they're wrong. <laughs> now, Jasmine, if I could just, um, just follow up on this question of, of sustainability and particularly more focused on social sustainability, uh, I was wondering if you could uh, highlight for us what is the what are the characteristics of particular groups that migrate who are vulnerable to poorer health outcomes, um, living perhaps on the urban fringes, and their migration experience not being a positive one, being economically disadvantaged by movement? What are the, the characteristics of some of those groups and what can be done to assist them uh, migrating to a city? It's quite a broad question, but um, I want to touch base back on uh, Glenn's answer. I think that when we think about sustainable cities, I think we should think about city as the plural form. So we not think about not a city, but a system of places that is interconnected, right? So uh, I think one of the reasons why people undertaking migration and getting themselves into very vulnerable condition is the inequality of power. They don't really have that much choice. And so they grab the best available choice for them, even if it, it comes as some personal financial cost or health cost. So if we can, as a policy level, think about how do we create more equal relationship between places. So in terms of infrastructure, that might mean that, you know, if you live in a rural area, you still have pretty good support to, and connections to the cities if you need anything or you can have a job opportunity, healthcare, good education, then maybe people are not as likely to move. So, And also in the context of climate change, um, a lot of studies have pointed out that um, another thing that we should pay attention to is um, a policy for adaptation. So policy that help farmers cope with climate change and help them with different strategies to hang on to their land or try a different crop or do something else about it. And that it requires a lot of investment, right, from the local, both local and the national government. So if we can do that, if they can cope just fine in place, or if they can move just a little bit further, not to like somewhere 100,000 kilometers away, then they might still be doing fine. So, so this is all, um, I think, a question of redistribution or equity. So um, how do we ensure that people from all these places have the same access to these opportunities? And so instead of asking whether we can stop people from moving into city, we can say, how do we make places outside the city more attractive to people? Mm, excellent. Thank you, Jasmine. And Sharon, can I ask you, you mentioned earlier on uh, health inequality, uh, potential risks in terms of food insecurity and how food systems work. Uh, what are some of the ways in which urban planners can start to manage some of these risks uh, in terms of you know, rapidly growing cities? If I can connect that to the question of uh, sustainable sustainable cities, um, so 
A sustainable city would be a place that doesn't privilege the car. It doesn't privilege uh, private development and it privileges green space. And so if you think then about food systems, so there's many different types of food systems. We've got our sort of dominant uh, industrial food system, uh, but we've also got alternative uh, food systems. And so you know, things like uh, local food markets, local uh, growing spaces, uh, you know, the return to the allotment that we see popping up in cities, in, in many cities around the world. And that's about saying in urban planning, we acknowledge that actually creating green space uh, or land that is not about commercial use or residential, uh, that it can be used and can be privileged for things like uh, growing food. Growing food also means that you've got shade uh, requirements and that's very good and from an environmental perspective that keeps us cool. It's part of a climate adaptation strategy as well. So you can hit multiple sort of policy goals as it were uh, if you think about food in that space. But also from a food security uh, perspective uh, and ensuring that we don't have food poverty and food deserts uh, within cities, you can make use of zoning uh, levers uh, within cities. So make sure that uh, in the zoning laws and um, planning that uh, junk food outlets are not allowed to be built next to schools, for example. That's a zoning uh, question. Uh, that the, we ensure that the mix of the types of retail outlets uh, are not favoured towards the uh, the, the the monopoly uh, of some of the the big retailers, where we know that uh, there's a greater proportion of uh, unhealthy foods are much more likely to be sold. So they're they're actually just zoning their planning laws. So you can use those sorts of levers, but you've got to think about those levers through that prism uh, of of food. Um, also, you know that question of uh, a sustainable city that is good for health, not specific to, to food per se, but that encourages us to be physically active. When the mayor of um, Bogota uh, in uh, Colombia was asked about uh, the width of pavements or sidewalks, there was a discussion about urban planning and he was very, very involved in, in urban planning. And he was asked a question about well, so how how wide should we have the pavement? And he said, you've asked me a political question. You've not asked me a technical question because the size of your sidewalk relates to the size of your roads and the size of your road relates to how much you privilege cars. Hmm. So from an environmental perspective and also from a health perspective, if we think about the sidewalks and the size of the sidewalks, uh, you can design them in such a way that encourages physical activity. And in the way that we have in Canberra, you know, you've got a sidewalk that has a bicycle path. That's actually saying we take that really seriously. You know, that's a strong political commitment uh, to it. I'd like us to improve our public transport a bit more in Canberra, but, you know, if anybody's listening. Um, so there's some really practical Things that are within the the levers that are levers that are in the hands of of local government uh, that could be so good for people's health, social equity, environment. Um, but again, it comes back to these questions of who's got the power and 
We haven't had a conversation about the private developers, but the private developers are really important in these discussions. And so another, I'll finish with the idea of um, participatory governance uh, in cities around the world that adopt a model of participatory governance and participatory budgeting, they have seen better social and health outcomes. I hope that uh, any urban planners or policymakers working in that area have had their had their notebook out and they've been writing lots of notes because I think we've got some great suggestions here. Unfortunately, we've we've run out of time. But uh, before we go, I'm going to ask, uh, ask you each in turn, if you had just briefly one piece of advice to give policymakers on how to manage urban populations in a sustainable way. And can I start with you, please, Glenn? One final nugget of wisdom. Think long term and plan the infrastructure ahead rather than after the uh, evolution of the uh, urban areas. Fantastic. And Jasmine? So in demography, we call this take a multi-regional approach instead of a uni-regional approach. So instead of just focusing on one city, think about the whole network of places that your policy would have effects on and the people inside them. Thank you, Sharon Friel, Jasmine Ha, and Glenn Withers for joining us on Policy Forum Pod today. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Thank you so much, Sharon, Glenn and Jasmine, for this very insightful discussion. But listeners, we're really keen to get your thoughts on it. Jump onto Facebook and reach out to us. We are Policy Forum Pod there. Just type that into the search bar. We are on Twitter under Apps Policy Forum. Or you can, of course, send us an email, podcastedpolicyforum.net. And if you want to learn more about the challenges that population growth poses or even want to build a career that could see you help institutions, communities and families deal with the pressures of demographic change, you might want to check out Crawford's Master of Population Change. You can find out all the information at crawford.anu.edu forward slash study. Now, let's turn our attention to domestic violence. On average, one woman a week is murdered by a current or former partner. Domestic and family violence is a leading cause of homelessness for women and their children. And according to an ABC story, Australia's police forces have to deal with a domestic violence incident every two minutes. A 2016 study by KPMG found that violence against women is estimated to cost the Australian economy $22 billion every year. But what about the human cost and how can those affected by domestic violence keep themselves safe from harm? I'm very pleased to welcome Hayley Boxall in the studio with me today to talk about her research in this space. Hello, Hayley. Good to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. Hayley is a PhD researcher at the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods and a senior research analyst at the Australian Institute of Criminology. 
Hayley, in your research, you've been asking women from Canberra and surrounding areas about how they try to keep safe and end violence in their relationships. Firstly, we heard there about the problem of domestic violence on a national scale, but what does it look like locally here in Canberra? Um, well, the best statistics that we have comes from the Personal Safety Survey. And when you actually do look at the breakdown by state, we know that one in 20 women will experience physical domestic violence over a 12-month period. And that number increases significantly when we look at emotional violence. Um, but then, of course, we have to think about things like um, women's ability to understand that what they're experiencing is domestic violence and abuse. So we're um, estimating that this figure is probably a lot higher than it actually has been reported. If we talk about emotional violence, how can we define that? It's a range of quite nasty behaviours, really. Um, so it ranges from things like verbal abuse, so put-downs, name-calling, things like that, um, gaslighting, so challenging people's perceptions and understanding of um, certain events or what's been happening. Uh, coercive controlling behaviours is something that we've been um, talking a lot about in the media recently. So that's things like stalking, social isolation, um, trying to control every aspect of women's and men's lives. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we're thinking about. Some very, very serious and incredibly stressful things to experience for victims. So what are some of the strategies that women employ to keep safe? Well, so we've spoken to 23 women so far. And I mean, the strategies that women use um, are very dependent on the situation and their understanding of the violence that they're experiencing. But we can broadly kind of categorize it into two different spaces. So one is those immediate reactionary kind of behaviors that women use to keep themselves safe on a day-to-day -day basis. And a lot of what women talk about is um, avoiding triggers, anticipating needs, um, doing things like being the perfect partner, which you would think would be different for every relationship, right? But it actually does really converge around those things like keeping a spotless home, making sure that the children are clean and fed and that the favorite meal is on the table. and Reducing so that, stresses, really. Basically, yeah. yeah. So um, their favorite beer is in the fridge and stuff like that. So that really kind of gendered um, I guess, ideal of what a woman should be doing in the house. Um, but then when we think about long-term safety, so particularly those women who make a decision that they want to leave the relationship, the planning, the strategies that women use are very different. So it's more things around planning, starting to reach out to family and friends, starting to put money away in secret accounts. Um, so real strategic kind of moves that women do kind of go through um, to kind of make themselves safe in the longer term. So we've seen some longer term, we've seen some short term um, reactions to this, of course, but how does it really affect women in their daily lives if we think about the way they also act on a daily basis, not just in the home, but also outside of the home? Um, a lot of the women talk about one of their key strategies being not talking about what's going on. And this is about their kind of coping strategy for them to be able to deal with what's going on. Because if they don't tell someone, they don't have to really acknowledge that what's happening to them is a problem or is dangerous or is making them unsafe. Because making it a reality if you talk about it openly, I guess. Yeah. Mm. And it's this kind of perception that we have that the only way that women can actually leave these relationships if that's the decision that they come to is if they recognize that what they're experiencing is abuse. But for the vast majority of women I've spoken to, that's actually not part of their process. It's not that they're leaving because they go, I can't experience abuse like this anymore. It's for other reasons that kind of help them along their way. So when we're thinking about how best to kind of help women in that short term, kind of approaching them and saying your partner's no good and you're experiencing violence may actually force them more into the 
the closet and make them more kind of defensive. So, I mean, on a day-to-day basis, we're talking about women who have tried multiple different strategies to try and keep themselves safe, have been frustrated at multiple points. And so they typically do get to the point of going, the best thing I can do is to make him happy. And that's emotionally draining and stressful. And it just wears them down over time. Which brings us to um, a question that some people might be wondering about. Is there a certain profile of woman that is more likely to experience a domestic violence? Because if you think about maybe from a standpoint of someone who has been experiencing a lot of abuse, even in their childhood by their parents, might be more willing to tolerate that sort of behavior. Mm. Or is there, can you even typify that in that way? One of the really interesting things about this study is that we do have a perception of who experiences domestic violence and we have this vision of a of a woman who doesn't have many natural resources at their disposal, who have experienced violence in their own childhoods or in previous relationships and so their barometer of what's unacceptable is potentially a bit skewed. But the women who are coming forward do not meet that profile at all. Um, most of the women are highly intelligent, educated, have careers, um, have a very, like, you know, have have good social standing, supportive families. I mean, there is a cohort of women who have experienced neglect and abuse, and they do talk about searching for a meaningful relationship and their partner fulfilling that need in them and that kind of had an emotional tie for them. But really, there isn't a profile. And I think the women who are coming forward really does kind of demonstrate that it happens everywhere and it could happen to anyone, really. Probably a good thing to also shake up that stereotype that there is a certain type of woman that experiences this more. There's really can happen to anyone and also to make sure that victims are taken seriously. Definitely. And I think it's also important to go like a lot of the men don't meet the stereotype of who would perpetrate violence either because – and for women they said that this kind of – like hindered their recovery, I guess, because they were going, but he doesn't look like someone who would. And they keep on talking about steroid, ragey, tattooed, big, muscly, aggro guys. But they keep on saying, actually, physically, I was a bit taller than him. He was a accomplished, like, you know, he he spoke a good talk about gender equity. He was, um, he wasn't a major drinker, all this kind of stuff. And they said that. So when I would actually start trying to talk to people about, they'll go, oh, I couldn't believe that he would do that. He's such a nice guy. And that would immediately that that's mes- dangerous. Yeah. yeah. And they and that messaging that they were receiving was, well, it's okay because he doesn't, he doesn't seem to be an issue, right? So yeah, it's been really, really interesting about um the importance of external messaging for these women in both identifying that what they're experiencing is unacceptable, but also challenging some of the real emotional abuse that they're getting from their partners who have been constantly telling them it's your fault, you're no good, you would never be able to make it without me, all of those kinds of things. So women talk about for their long-term strategies for getting um out of these relationships and for their long-term safety education. So actually, for example, knowing that no, their partner can't take their kids from them and abscond to Queensland or wherever without their kind of say so. Um, Things like realizing, actually, no, I could get a job and I could actually financially support myself. And also someone else will want me that this isn't the end of my romantic lives. And for some women, that was really meaningful to identify that there were other alternatives besides their abuser. So I can see that there's a lot of meaning to your research already coming from what you've you've told me. But if you could kind of summarize that for us, what are you hoping to achieve through your research? 
We started this from a safety planning point of view. So really, what are the strategies that women are using and what are their perceived, I guess, effectiveness in managing their day-to-day risk? Um, and also what's helpful for helping women to leave these situations if that's what they need to do? Um, but we've also kind of gone, that information is still really there and it's really meaningful and important. Um, but it's also around messaging. So the fact that the women who are coming forward do not meet a stereotype, are not being abused by a stereotype and have experienced such pushback from the people who they have actually gone to for help on the basis that, well, no, you you don't experience domestic violence. That happens over there. So I think it's more broad than just support, like planning processes and program development. It's about understanding who experiences domestic violence and what we need to do when someone discloses. Is it the fact that when people do disclose these sorts of things to their family or even to authorities, where do they hit the wall? Is it more in a personal space or is it authorities that tend to push back? Look, it's uh, the women have spoken about both experiences. So, I mean, some of the women talk about fabulous police officers, but that um, their families weren't supportive and then vice versa. And then there are women who were never believed by anyone. One of the kind of slightly humbling things is that a lot of these women... Um, the first person that they've spoken to about this because they learnt very early on through their engagement with the family law system, through police, through their families, through their friends, that they wouldn't be believed. So I think it's just one of the things of things are getting better, but we still need to do more. If we're looking at what can we do better and we go a bit into maybe a policy perspective, what could policymakers do better to protect victims of domestic violence? Well, there's two prongs to that. So firstly, we haven't just been speaking to women who have left those relationships. We've also spoken to women who are still in the relationship in the context of the violence has ended or it's gotten very, um, has reduced a lot. So a lot of those women have said repeatedly that there are no services available to them, that any kind of support that could be provided through any kind of, um, I guess, legal service and domestic violence service has been contingent on them leaving that relationship. And And that's understandable, but it is also not supporting women when they need help, when they are still in a high-risk situation, because this is someone who is trying to move towards non-violence but may not have already gotten there. So there was a repeated frustration from that point of view. So I think there is obviously a broader need to support women to um, be safe in relationships while they're still in those relationships. On the second, on the other kind of point is that one of the things that women who have left those relationships have consistently said is that when they could see a future without their part, without their abuser, and that there was a clear pathway for them to achieve that, that's when they were able to leave and to make that decision stick. But when they had no money, when they had no legal recourse against their partner, when they had been evicted from their houses by their partner, it was, and they had no support from their family and friends who didn't believe them, then they basically were in a situation where they felt like they had to go back. And that really just highlights that we can only, we can only expect women to do so much considering that their experience prolonged trauma and their ability to kind of support themselves post-split, we need to be there to pick up the pieces and we need to provide them with really tangible support so that they can actually see a future where they don't have to be with an abuser to, I guess, live day to day. Absolutely understandable from from that standpoint that we do need those tangible pathways for women to walk towards and be safe on their way. So fantastic research, Haley. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us today. Yeah, no worries. And if you want to participate in Haley's research, go to bit.ly forward slash ending DV study. 
And if you want to share your thoughts on what Haley and I have just discussed, you can reach us on Twitter where we are at Apps Policy Forum or you can shoot us an email at podcastpolicyforum.net. But of course, the very best way to join the conversation is to join us on our Facebook podcast group. Just search Policy Forum Pod on Facebook and you'll find Martin, Lydia and me, of course, and heaps of very engaged podcast listeners there. And at this stage of the podcast, we also like to say hi to our new pod group members. This week, we would like to welcome Rocco Wieglatz, Jan Landsberg and Graham Smith. It's so great to have you all on board. And one thing we really love about this group is the fantastic podcast that you suggest to us. We keep a list of them in the files on Facebook. So do take a look when you're in need for more pod inspiration or when you've worked your way through every policy forum pod, democracy sausage podcast or national security podcast, if that is even possible. So Hayley, uh, do you have any podcast that you could recommend to our listeners that they should add to the list? Um, look, so I wish I could say that I um, listen to um, highfalutin intelligent podcasts. Um, but I do work in DFV and I to decompress, I do listen to some quite trashy podcasts. So one I'm listening to at the moment is um, My Dad Wrote a Porno, um, which sounds a bit ironic considering I am a DFV. But it is basically a very, very funny um, comedic podcast with a 30-year-old comedian in the UK with a couple of his mates reading um, some erotic fiction that his dad wrote. <laughs> from sounds the... so cringeworthy. <laughs> it is really quite cringeworthy, but it's, um, it's, it's quite sweet actually because it's a 60-year-old Irish man writing what he thinks is sexy to his demographic, which is the early 20s. And he writes as a 27-year-old woman. How and do you come up with that? That's I, just fantastic. I don't know because it's quite funny because um, his friends keep on asking him, like, you know, have you talked to your dad about this? And this doesn't seem to really be something that they talk about. Like, But it's this weirdly, like, he writes as a very empowered feminist woman just having sexy adventures and it's really cringeworthy. But, yeah, I really enjoy that one. That is just fantastic. I think it can't hurt to add some lightheartedness to our quite policy and politics-heavy podcast list. So we'll make sure to put it on there. So listeners, do check it out. My dad wrote a porno. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. And if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts from. Today's episode has been produced and written by me, Julia Ahrens, with executive production by Martin Pierce, and we'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. But until then, for me, Julia, cheerio. <laughs>